Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Then, then we'll, we'll move on. Father, we are about to engage with you through your written eternal word. And our confidence in you is firm. Should I stray from truth by mistake or misunderstanding, guard us from any influence that might lead us to a house built on sand. But where your truth interacts with our lives, we pray that you will transform us into people who are growing more and more in every way like Christ. And shape us, Father, through your Spirit's presence so that in all ways we live truth in love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, flipping through a file that I have labeled transformation this past week because of sermon prep, and I came across an article in that file that was entitled, Can Transformation Last? And what caught my eye, the reason I pulled it out of my file was not just the subject, but when I saw the title, Can Transformation Last? I recognized that this was a a one-page editorial from an old Newsweek magazine, and I don't normally think of Newsweek as a magazine that was all that interested in transformation. So I pulled it out and I started realize, reading it and I, I immediately remembered um, the article. It was an editorial written by Anna Quinlan and it was published in early October 2001 and that date is all important. Uh, being a New Yorker, Anna Quinlan was writing early 2001. She was writing about the transformation that was visible everywhere in our country as a result of September 11, 2001, and the attacks that had occurred just one month before she wrote the article. And in that article, Anna was remembering how members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, had stood on the Capitol steps together and sang, God bless America. She remembered how the mayor of New York, who had had a reputation in New York for being a rather mean-spirited bully, was suddenly transformed, her word, transformed into someone who was passionate and determined that people affectionately started calling this man America's mayor. She wrote about a president who had been somewhat floundering in office in his early months, But in her words, he rose to moments of greatness with his inspiration and his focus. She wrote about Broadway and the unprecedented generosity flowing from the theater. She wrote about sports teams that were just starting again to play and their demonstrations of humility and grace and service. She wrote about first responders and the thousands and thousands of volunteers who she said were acting in unimaginably self-sacrificial ways. And being in the business of journalism, she wrote about the media, who on the whole, she said, 
had devoted themselves tirelessly to accuracy, to rising above pettiness, and to unusual humility. And then having reflected on that transformation in our country, in her last paragraph, she asked this, can this last? Will the horror fade and the understanding of what is truly important fade away too? Will Americans return to fussing over slow elevators and obsessing about who wins Survivor? And Anna wrote, hopefully, once we have risen, perhaps the view is too grand to give up. And her last line, can it be so? Well, we know the answer now, don't we? Did transformation last? Hardly. Look at us. See, our problem is that we don't know how to bring about genuine transformation that lasts. But Jesus does. Jesus does. In truth, your transformation is called in the Bible the master work of God. Your transformation and mine is called the master work of God. And I long for that. I long for my transformation. And I know that many of you do too, actually, or you wouldn't be here. So that has been our theme for the last few weeks, the theme of growing up, being transformed. God's goal for you and I, stated very simply in the Bible, is to grow up in every way to be more like Christ. Now, in every message so far, although I've been studying other passages of Scripture, in every message, I have ended up quoting one particular statement of Jesus about transformation. And this morning, we're going to look at that one statement of Jesus and focus on it. And it comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 40, where Luke, who, who, um, Luke who wrote this, Luke wrote this. Then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another blind person? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. Now, back to the beginning of that very short passage. How many of you have ever heard the expression, um, the blind leading the blind? Uh, that expression, like just dozens and dozens of, of other uh, sayings, has, has made its way into our culture because of Jesus, when he said, can a blind person lead another blind person? Now, actually, having read that uh, this past week and thinking about it, it actually struck me that being uh, part of a hypersensitive, PC-driven cancel culture that we are, Jesus would probably get in trouble today for saying that. Can the blind lead the blind? As if he was insulting visually challenged people. But we all know that Jesus is not making fun of blind people we all know what he's talking about. He's talking about leaders. He's talking specifically about failed leaders, failed teachers, 
And here's a very interesting observation I've made during this last month or so in talking about this. In almost every single discussion that we've been looking at, that I've been studying, in almost every single biblical discussion about growing up, about transformation, I've noticed that in almost every one, there is always a warning included about failed teachers or failed leaders, just like right here, where right before Jesus said that a person who is fully trained will become like his teacher, Jesus included a warning about the blind leading the blind. And in almost every case, that warning is there. In Ephesians 4, which we studied a couple weeks ago, where Paul talks about growing up, Paul actually warned about uh, wrong teachers, and he warned us about being blown from one new pop teaching to the next. Or John, in John's, got, in John's letters, when he started warning about popular, eloquent teachers who were really teachers who were anti to Christ, John was warning against them. Or James, James warned about teachers who cleverly twist the truth so that people are convinced that faith and actions are actually two separate things. Or Jesus, who famously warned about wolves in sheep's clothing or blind leading the blind. This is a consistent theme. Whenever transformation is the subject, whenever the Bible's talking about growing up, surprisingly, there is always a warning about failed teachers or failed leaders. Why is this so? Do you know why? It's because... We are all students. We all need teachers. All of us, without exception, we learn how to live in this world from someone else. Someone teaches us how to live. You and I are someone's student. Several someones, actually, probably a series of someones. Human beings are the kind of creatures who simply must learn how to live. We must be taught. We're going to pause a second. Now, you're going to think that we're actually leaving this subject and going somewhere else. We're not. It's the same subject, but you will think that I've digressed because for a minute I want to talk about hummingbirds and elk. But hang in there. How many of you, um, how many of you uh, put out a hummingbird feeder? So I love, I put out a hummingbird feed. I love watching hummingbirds. So yesterday, because it was a warm day, I decided, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder where the hummingbirds are right now. So I went online and I checked my hummingbird sightings yesterday to find out if it's time for my feeder or not. Because hummingbirds, as you all know, if not, you, you do now. This is a, a bonus. You're not paying for this. But um, hummingbirds, as, as you might know, they migrate, right? You all know that. Hummingbirds migrate. And they, they, uh, during the winter, they go down to Mexico for margaritas and for the beaches. But um, they are headed back right now. They're migrating back. And I was wondering kind of where are they? And if you're curious, this was my hummingbird map for the curious. Right now, the hummingbirds are just south of Virginia. You don't have to put your feeder out yet. They're not here. They will be in another month. That's where they are. The sightings right now are south of Virginia. Now, um, Migrations, migrations are really fascinating events in the animal world. 
Whether we're talking about hummingbirds or elk or any other animal that migrates, it's really, really amazing thing. And you probably all know that we have long puzzled over the question of, well, how do they know? How do they know where to go? By what magic do hummingbirds and elk know where to go? Well, it turns out that a really, really important part of the answer is they learn. It's true. It's not magic. They learn where to go. In elk herds, for example, the leaders of the migration every year are the cows. Now, by the way, in case you didn't know this, when you're talking about elk, you don't talk about bucks and does. You talk about bulls and cows, which, again, that's free. That's, you don't have to. But at any way, in the West, now, that Pennsylvania elk herds don't migrate. They don't need to migrate. But in the West, in those places where the winters in the mountains are especially brutal, the elk migrate. They'll come off the mountains, they'll head down into the valleys, and the elk migrations, thousands of them you can see, they will travel sometimes hundreds of miles to the valleys where they can find winter feeding ground. And here's the thing, the leaders of the migration every year are the four, five, six, and seven-year-old cows who have learned the way. They lead the migration. And we know this because if you remove those cows from the, from the herd, they have no idea where to go and the migration collapses. So it turns out that at least in the wild, it's the women who know the directions, which... Um, explains a whole lot if you think about it, but I shall not go there. You're welcome. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is magic. This is not magic. It is learned. It's learned. We are no different. How do we know how to live? We learn. We're students. Every single one of us. Now, I know this goes against the grain of our American mythology in which we believe in being yourself and making your own way and rugged individualism. That's what we believe as Americans. And you know why we believe that? Because we were taught it. It's an idea we learned. You did not come to that belief by yourself on your own, period. We are all students. So, who are your teachers? Who are your mentors? Who are your teachers? This is such an important question because we human beings, we end up becoming what our leaders are. We end up becoming what our teachers are. I mean, look at us. Do you think that we come to this bickering, this pettiness, this smallness, this ugliness on our own? We become what we're taught. 
Now, in Luke's world, in the world of Jesus, they knew this better than we do, and they understand it. Uh, teachers in, in Luke's day, teachers in Jesus' day, they understood that they were not just transferring knowledge from one brain to another. They understood in Luke's day that they were actually modeling how to live, that they were teaching life. That's why Paul, for example, when he wrote to a young preacher that he was mentoring named Titus, Paul wrote, you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. It's why Paul could very confidently write to the Philippians, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. And it's why Jesus would say, every student, when he is fully trained, will become like his teacher. So, who is your teacher? Jesus simply assumed that the people in his world would find his life to be so wisely lived, so morally beautiful, so good, so grace-filled, so powerful, so compelling, that they would want to be guided by him. And they did, by the thousands. Massive crowds came to hear Jesus. In a day before you could do group texts and Facebook advertising, people found Jesus wherever he was. And without any microphones, without any cameras, they sat all day and listened to him by the thousands. They would come to him at night secretly. They chased him from one end of Israel to the other. They never let him rest unless he himself managed to slip away into the wilderness. More than once, they actually tried to make him king. In fact, today, this day is actually a Palm Sunday. It's a celebration of one of those days when the people shouted, Hosanna, here comes our king. No one ever lived like Jesus. But then Jesus did a very strange and sobering thing. And John, who was... John, who was a very close friend of Jesus, maybe his closest friend, and John, who was an eyewitness of this event, John actually wrote it down in John chapter 6. It's a chapter worth reading if you get a chance, and it must have been very painfully hard for John to write this. It starts out actually very grand, John chapter 6. This is one of those massive crowd days. At least 5,000 men, John said, they counted the men, at least 5,000 men showed up, which means you can probably triple the number to include the families. And this group of thousands spent the entire day learning from Jesus, their teacher. Some of them were healed on that day. By the end of the day, John said, the crowd was hungry. And Jesus looked at his disciples. What do you have? What should we feed them with? And you remember this story, right? He opened up a lunchbox, a couple fish, a couple loaves of bread. And that crowd was fed miraculously. What would you do if you were in that crowd on that day? Well, that was one of the days when the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force, John said. I mean, who wouldn't? Who can do that? 
So when sunset came, in order to be to avoid being made king by force, Jesus slipped away into the hills. By nightfall, Jesus had not returned. So John said, being an eyewitness, being there, John said, Jesus didn't come back by dark, so we got in the boat by ourselves and we rode across the lake. Uh, Meanwhile, the crowds, believe it or not, John said, the the crowds actually curled up on the mountainside. They waited for the morning because they were going to try again with Jesus. Jesus was so compelling, they couldn't even go home to go to sleep. Next morning, John says, the crowds woke up. The boat was gone. The disciples were gone. So was Jesus. But this crowd was not to be denied, so they rolled up their sleeping bags, grabbed some Pop-Tarts and some power bars, and they started off along the shore of the lake because they knew there's only so many places on a lake you can go with a boat, so they knew we can catch up with Jesus somewhere along the shore of this lake, and they did. They found him. And then Jesus started talking again. Quite a talk. He said, you know, yesterday I fed you endless quantities of bread. And then he asked, do you remember, do you remember how God once fed the Israelites bread from heaven? Yeah, they all knew. They remembered the Sunday school flannel graph lessons, the manna from heaven. They knew. And then Jesus said, well... I am the bread from heaven. Huh? That's right, he said, I am bread from heaven. Anybody who ate the manna that God fed us eventually died. But anyone who eats this bread will never die. What? Listen to this truth, Jesus said. You must eat the flesh of the Son of Man. And you must drink his blood. Jesus went on like that for some time, saying some very strange things. John, who was there, wrote about it, and he said this. It must have pained John to write this sentence. It was at that point that many of the disciples turned away from Jesus and deserted him. You know, it's one thing to like Jesus a lot when he is saying things like, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I want rest. Most people do. It is another thing entirely when the same person starts saying, if you want everlasting kingdom life, then you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and take my life into you. It's the only way. So who is your teacher now? Many of them said, not him, not anymore. 
There is something that you and I must absolutely understand about transformation, about the kind of growing up we're hoping to do. This is not a self-improvement program. The gospel does not offer us a self-improvement plan. In fact, I'll be honest with you, having been part of the American church all my life, I believe that in our country, in our culture right now, that's one of the false gospels that Jesus is warning about. The blind leading the blind. If I can be honest, I've had to learn this lesson the hard way through great frustration and great personal pastoral pain. Because like a lot of pastors, I thought that I could take biblical wisdom and teach it to people, and we could make the Christian life sound so appealing that seekers would say, well, I want in. I mean, look at some of the books in the Bible, like Proverbs, for example, a favorite book. There's just tremendous wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom about money, wisdom about our words, wisdom about relationships, warnings about lying and greed and anger, really, really good stuff. Anybody can read Proverbs. You don't have to be in church to read it. Anybody can read it. Any person can apply the wisdom of Proverbs. And if you apply it, maybe you will do better with your money, and that's good. And if you apply it, maybe you'll do better with your words, and that's good. But what self-help teaching cannot do is what you and I are after. It cannot transform a human heart. It cannot change us into people who are growing in every way to be more and more like Christ. Only Jesus can do that. Now, here's what I mean. This is important, so stick with me. There's a great chapter in our Bibles. You will all be familiar with it, probably, if you've ever been to a wedding, because God put this chapter in the Bible knowing that couples would endlessly be getting married and they'd endlessly be saying, Pastor, what's the scripture we can read at our wedding? And pastors would say, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, God put it there for your wedding. So God arranged for 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to be put in the Bibles. It's the love chapter, and it reads, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Anybody disagree with that? I don't think anybody does. Republicans or Democrats, beach people or mountain people, we all agree. And for most of my pastoral life, I simply assumed that what this means is that if you want to love, then learn to be patient, learn to be kind, unjealous yourself. Stop making those rude bathroom sounds and smells when you're out to eat. Now, this is not a wrong thing to teach. If we were all more patient and less rude, that would be a good thing. I mean, except for social media, maybe. I think the marketing for posting things would decline and plummet 
precipitously if we were all suddenly patient and less rude. Unfortunately, that's not exactly what this chapter is telling us. What it is saying so plainly and obviously is this is what love is. It is not saying, well, get patient so you can love. It is saying this is what love is. It is patient. What it is saying is, so get love. Get love. And how exactly does one do that? Well, very correctly, I have heard teachers say, they could point out, teachers have pointed out, and I've heard teachers say this, that you could take that chapter, you could remove the word love, and you could insert the word Jesus in every place where the word love is, and it would still be true. Jesus is kind. Jesus is patient. Jesus is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. All completely true. I don't think that we can say that about, that about any other human being, but we can say it about Jesus. So, to get love, get Jesus. What I'm trying to say is that growing up, transformation is entirely focused on Jesus. Jesus came to redeem human lives. Jesus came to transform human hearts, to make it possible for you and I to love in ways that we never imagined possible. And our transformation, yours and mine, our growing up cannot happen without Jesus. It just cannot. Now stick with me. Let me try to explain this so that you'll trust me on this. What Jesus did when he was here with his original disciples and what he intends to do with us still is simply to be with us. What he did with those original 12 is to say, I'm going to be with you. That's what he meant when he said to them, follow me. And then he spent time, minutes and days and weeks and years, he spent time with them. And that's the invitation that Jesus is still making for you and for me. I just want to be with you. Now, oddly, when Jesus was preparing to actually leave in person, he said, I'm going to be with you always. And then he turned around and left. But he also said, when I leave, I will send the Spirit. He will be beside you. He will help you. Jesus was saying what is still too true today. He is, in fact, present with us right now, right here through the Spirit. 
So I simply must understand and I must trust that I am right at this moment with Jesus. And here's the thing. Here's the way it works. I told you last week, for example, that our transformation can't be done without us. I told you that my role in my transformation is to exercise, to train. I told you last week how some of the training that I've been doing deliberately for the last two years is working on conversations because I want to be able to talk to people like Jesus talked to people. Now, here's the thing. When I go to Planet Fitness to exercise, when I sit down in one of the machines, the machine always has a picture of the particular muscles that I'm going to be growing. Well, <laughs> maybe growing. The muscles that I'm going to be growing when I train on that particular machine. I'll sit down and maybe there's a picture of shoulders highlighted or arms or a torso. In other words, that machine is telling me here on this machine, you're training a specific muscle group. Now follow this, please. When I train with the goal of growing up in every way to be like Christ, for me, for example, I'm working on having conversations with people. But I am not growing my talking muscles. When I train, I'm not growing specific muscles like my patience muscles or my forgiveness muscles or my talking muscles. See, this is the biggest mistake that most of us make when trying to grow as a Christian. We think, well, I need to be more patient or I need to be less greedy. So maybe I can train and work on patience. So we think, well, I can grow my patience muscles. And maybe it works for a while for you. Maybe you pick the longest line at Weiss's and think, I will train to be patient. Maybe it works. Maybe the light is yellow and you slow down. And we try very, very hard to be more patient. And maybe you have a good day, all day. You never yell at your computer once. Maybe you get through the whole day without ever throwing out the F-bomb at anybody. And you think, it's working. And then comes a day that you have to resolve a problem with Verizon. You spend 17 minutes, not that I would know anything about this, but you spend 17 minutes doing the, if you are calling about service, press one. If you're calling about, and you spend 17 minutes just pressing buttons. Another 40 minutes on hold. Another 22 minutes talking to a robot. And you finally talk to a living, breathing person who says, oh, I need to transfer you to our tech department. And you say, no, 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 no. And they are gone. And you start all over again. Smoke is billowing out to your ears and your nose and your eyes. You walk back to your secretary and you say, forget patience. I don't want to learn it anymore. And then you start to think, never going to happen for me. 
Jesus is never going to make me a poor, patient person. He probably isn't exactly. Because what Jesus wants is to make you a more loving person. And to do that, what he is saying is, trust me. Trust me. Because he can do this. He really can. When you are exercising, what we are training is not necessarily our patience muscles. What we are training is our ability to trust our teacher. What we are exercising when we train is our ability to trust our teacher. And I have to tell you, I have noticed the most amazing thing. For a good year, year and a half, I thought that I was growing my talking muscles. I did. I thought, as I was practicing conversations, I thought, well, I can grow to learn to talk to people like Jesus. But do you know what I have noticed? In my training in conversations, I noticed that I am also learning to actually look at people I see more eyes than I've ever seen. I see hair. I see name tags, tattoos, scars, makeup, piercings. And when I look at those people, not every time, but when I look more, more often than I ever thought possible, I actually found myself caring about the people I was talking with. And what I have learned is, surprisingly, Jesus is ever so slowly growing my ability to love, to care. And you know the most surprising thing of all? I have found that if I actually grow in love, I actually want to talk with people. It's true. It's amazing. This love to be alone in a tree stand Pennsylvania Dutchman sometimes finds himself wanting to talk to people. A long, long time ago, an old prophet named Isaiah, he once wrote, when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the poor will be fed, the prisoners will be freed, and a lonely Pennsylvania Dutchman will enjoy talking. And Jesus came, and a miracle happened, and it's true. See, here's the miracle of a transformed heart. Slowly, ever so slowly, it starts to happen that I get to the place where I no longer want to sin. And slowly, ever so slowly, I'm coming to the place where I want to do 
what I was trying so hard to want to do. See, here's the secret. Our training is really training in being with Jesus, in growing my ability to trust him. And when you trust him, a miracle starts to happen. Truly. Heart gets changed. Which causes me to ask just one more time. Who is your teacher? Father, we um, sometimes try so hard to change ourselves. We work so, so hard at being better human beings, at forgiving, being kind, wanting to avoid the things that we find ourselves looking at online and being drawn back time and time again. God, you have arranged for our transformation and it's an amazing thing what you've done. God, I pray, I pray that we will understand that what we are learning to do is to trust Jesus. To be able to say, okay, God, you are in charge. I trust you. I pray, God, that you'd be at work in all of our lives doing this miracle of transformation, and I pray it in Jesus' name, the name of our teacher. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.